What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is a great way to stay on top of China news in a few minutes a day with a daily email newsletter, a mobile phone app, and at the website SupChina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I'm coming to you today from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Jeremy Goldcorn is on holiday in New Zealand right now, but I am joined by David Moser in Beijing. David is academic director of the CET program there in Beijing, and he's at least half of what I miss most right now about the city. So, how are you, David? Wow, uh, great! Glad to be your your better half here <laughs> here in Beijing. <laughs> you are. You were my work wife for a while there. You know,、uh, you survived the deluge. I'm glad to see too. It must have been. Uh, oh, 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 yeah! You missed that. that. Yeah, subways completely flooded.、Uh, some some line, some 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 stations on line one had water up to your knees. It was pretty amazing. Oh Lord! Wow. So so David, China has its share of odd places where certain types of commerce or manufacturing have tended to concentrate for electronic components like LEDs and very. Application-specific chips.、Right. There's this section of Shenzhen, for example,、uh, which we talked about on our show recently with Clay Shirky.、Uh, I've heard tell of of towns in Fujian and in Jiangsu that are almost wholly given over to like playground equipment or to <laughs> fasteners. Yeah, yeah. But there's nowhere quite like the city of Yiwu in Zhejiang. For reasons I don't fully understand, it has become the center for tchotchkes, for novelty items, for Injection molded plastic crap, and it has just become a true mecca for everyone in the trinket trade. It is, <laughs> in the words of the man who has recently released a documentary about the city of Yiwu, he called it the city that built the dollar store. Yeah.、Uh, so today on Seneca, we are delighted to welcome Dan Whalen, documentarian and director of the excellent film Bulkland, who joins us to talk about his fascinating documentary, The Bizarre City at Its Center. The people who live and work there, and what the city and all of its vicissitudes tell us about where China may be headed. Dan, welcome to Seneca. Thanks a lot, Kaiser. Thanks for having me.、Uh, so first, congrats on the documentary, which I thought was just fantastic. So, well, what's next for the film? Have you sent it off for competition? Are we going to see it at Sundance?、Uh, not at Sundance this year. It's it's played a few festivals around the world in Sweden,、uh, one in the States in Michigan, and I think where was the other one? There's a third one. <laughs> so yeah, it's played. It's a, a Swedish documentary, right? I mean, the the folks who who produced it were from Gothenburg or something, right? That's right. So yeah, we produced it in we co-produced it with a studio in Gothenburg called Filmvast, which is the West Coast Film Commission in Sweden. Yeah, we had a lot of support in Sweden. We did all the post production and the editing back in um in Australia, but but yeah, the the money side of things and the pre production side all came from Sweden. 
Great. So we're we're all familiar with this pattern of China's factory to the world model, and it's you know super efficient and well sourced supply chains, and it's very concentrated production. You know, the Foxconn factories that make all the world's iPhones, and these entire cities that are like I said, dedicated to producing just shoelaces or Christmas ornaments. So, in a way, Bulkland, your film is a chapter in that whole ongoing tale. Uh, but the story of Yiwu, with its special history as a manufacturing and supply chain hub, is pretty unique in all of this. So can you tell us what drew you first to Yiwu, uh, what, what made you decide to set your documentary here in that particular city? So I think what's very fascinating about Yiwu, and probably uh, makes it unique from places where there's Foxconn factories or places in Shenzhen where they just produce one item, is that... Uh, it was all about the market, you know. So they are bringing all of those little villages uh, that George Young's famous for. You know, that's it's there's there's that great section in uh, Country Driving in that Peter Hessler book where he drives from about three hours and goes through towns, uh, all these different little towns, and one will make playing cards, the next one will make buttons, the next one will make um, brass straps. But Iwu brings them all together. So Iwu's got this huge market. I think. Well, the Estimates online put it at about 4 million square metres, this market. Uh, yeah, so this market is a place for for all of these factories to sell their wares, to sell their wares direct to consumers there. I heard about Iwu when I first moved to Shanghai about five years ago. There was a really good photo series in Time Out Shanghai about the city where a photographer just went around and took photos of, of the uh, stores in this gigantic market. And it was just so visually striking to see these products that you see, yeah, those trinkets, like you say, you know, that you see spread out on a mat at the front of the Colosseum in Rome or in a dollar <laughs> store in your local town or at the cash register at a Walmart or something for up sales. Yeah, for me, it was kind of like walking through my childhood <laughs> through various Walmarts and Kmarts uh, to, to, <laughs> to see all this stuff that, that, but you usually see it one at a time or only at Christmas. And here we are, you're, the, there's so many scenes in the film where you're just uh, absolutely, you know, over, overwhelmed by this, this wall of schlock. It's just amazing. Yeah, you're just swimming in 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 santa right i mean that, that's of course the most visually arresting scene of course yeah. is that one just shot by the cash register where these different animatronic santas <laughs> are doing their little things oh my god well, yeah when you go there it's so audio visually sort of it's just this huge overstimulation when you go to the market because not only are these these little animatronic santas bouncing out at you you are constantly hearing those tinny little shitty speakers, you know, blasting out the, the latest pop song. So when we went there, it was Gangnam Style. So every, it just, it just, <laughs> yeah, it scarred me how much I've heard Gangnam Style be pumped out of the two cent speaker. <laughs> Is the suicide rate very high never, there? <laughs> I mean, seriously, you, you must have, have longed for a, a fragmentation grenade. At some yeah. Point. yeah, that was my point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That that's it. I mean, it's it's you get fatigued by the market so quickly. It's like a physical fatigue. I mean, it's it's the same as if you went to a mall shopping, your Christmas shopping or something. It's that same level of fatigue that you feel. But I guess in the Futian market in Iwu, it'd it'd kick in after about nine minutes. It's uh yeah, and but they spend all their time there. That's it's so, it's very striking walking around the markets and seeing people just sitting amongst. You know, these fake pianos that flash LED lights and play 
each each piano is playing a different song by itself, and there's just someone in there on QQ or like cleaning their nails or something, and they're there ten hours a day, twelve hours a day, seven days a week. It's mind boggling. I, I can't imagine what sort of level they're they're their mental health would be in after after a month. Then, or do so. they have quality psychiatric facilities? <laughs> <laughs> they might have institutes out in the hills there where they're keeping a bunch of traders and uh, and market stall owners. Yeah, keeping them in straitjackets up there. It's very, there's a lot of serenity <laughs> around there, so maybe they all get out to the uh, to the reservoirs every afternoon. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, back to your initial point, the initial question. I read that strike, that article about about in Time Out Shanghai, and I decided to visit it with with my co-producer Tobias, and it was it was more evocative than than we could have imagined just by reading the article. You know, the size of the market is indescribable. It, it's it looks like photos I've seen at the Pentagon or something. It's just this monolithic thing that spreads as far as you can see. Wow! And it's just it's just a very exotic town. You know, there's the traders are mostly from developing countries you know parts of africa uh the middle east central asia south america so there's these sort of characters walking around that that i'm not used to seeing being from australia you know i mean i've, I've been around the world but i've i've, I've yeah tra- you don't see them all in one place like that's that, right. right i've traveled a lot but i haven't seen characters like that sort of wandering around it was it's a really wonderful place there's there's a large Yemeni population there that you, you you talk about. In fact, you know you interview a gentleman who had come only very recently from Yemen, uh, and having not learned the language yet, he is spending his time teaching English at a local Arab school. But anyway, the, the, the one of the things they tell you about Iwu is that there's amazingly good Middle Eastern food there. I thought that was interesting. There's an enormous community. Apparently, you had a, a very striking scene of of people at a mosque doing their ablutions and getting ready for prayer. But let's talk a little bit about the ethnic mix and, and what it tells about the history and the, the current makeup of the city. Uh, it struck me that Yemeni community, they said they had been there for 30, 35 years, huh? That's right. So the Yemenis, um, for, from all I've read about Iwu, the Yemenis were said to be the first people to, to discover the market. You know, because, I mean, Iwu started, I mean, Iwu's famous for trading. It's... um. I mean, back to the 1600s, it's it's sort of famous for their their ability to trade because they don't have arable land and they don't have maritime borders. They don't they don't have that ability to trade uh, like people in Wenzhou say do, or to farm like like people in in other in other sort of parts of Zhejiang do. So they trade it, but they've always had a market there even during the communist times. But once Deng Xiaoping opened it up and they started a market selling their wares, you know, only domestically. But the story goes that a bunch of Yemeni students and businessmen discovered the town in the late 80s or early 90s, mm-hmm. and it coincided with the end of austerity measures in Saudi Arabia. As, uh-huh. So these Yemenis were able to buy trinkets, decorations. You know, you see a lot of prayer clocks. You see a lot of prayer clocks at the market in Iwu. I'm, I'm assuming that's what they started selling, but trinkets, you know, little toys that the Saudi Arabian population could could afford now. And they that the Yemeni population there is still the the largest. People were saying it's about twenty, thirty thousand Yemenis there. Wow. Um wow. but that that sort of laid the groundwork for a a Muslim friendly and an Arabic speaking friendly community. So then uh come about five, six years later when when nine eleven happened, it was difficult for Arab traders to get US visas. So a lot of them came to China and they, you know, through word of mouth, they found Iwu and they found it's so cheap there that they 
it was fascinating. It was it was affordable for them to you know like a an Iraqi guy who buys products for say ten stores in Baghdad. It's it's profitable for him to fly to Iwu, buy all of his stuff there, and then sell it at a high markup to to his customers back in Baghdad. So yeah, you go there. It is there's a there's a very large Arab quarter in the middle of the town, which um is really really a, a sort of a fascinating place. And and you'll see a sequence in the film where you filmed there at the El Aid, I think that's what it's called, the El Aid Festival. Right, the, the last day of 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 that's right, yeah, of of, of Ramadan fasting. That's right, last day of uh, fasting where they slaughter uh, rams, and in the town, the, the the entire Arab quarter was just full of sheep. <laughs> we didn't know it was on. We we came we came in to get something to eat, uh, and and it was just it was the, the whole thing was just full of uh, rams. Them just slaughtering them on the street and. And uh, everyone coming around and buying live lambs and, and them slaughtering them. Uh, yeah, it was a very, it's a very particular scene in the film, and it's a very particular memory of mine. You know, indeed, this, this, indeed. Speaking speaking of lambs to slaughter, uh, I was struck by the film, um, and what I think is what's kind of uh, one of the most useful things about it is that it comes. It's a snapshot of a very interesting time in the in the Chinese economy, in the trajectory of, of the China's Chinese economy. In in the sense that this is still uh, obviously a huge market, but the Chinese economy is slowing down, and China is moving away from from this factory to the world model. And so, what the film does so well is to give give a, a sort of glimpse into the lives of these people who are all, in some one way or the other, feeling the pinch. I mean, maybe some people who had who had struck it rich there, but now they're feeling in a little bit. Uh, uh, they're struggling a bit. You, you get the feeling of this big city where a, a bubble has popped, and now there are all these desperate entrepreneurs and, and unskilled laborers t- trying to squeeze the last drop from a, a dying cash cow. <laughs> or sheep. <laughs> or sheep. <laughs> yeah, bring it more animals to slaughter here. Hmm. But uh, maybe talk about that a little bit. Was that something you sort of wanted to explore, or did would that just emerge naturally from the, the filming of these people's lives? Yeah. You mean the sort of downward trajectory? Yeah, this downward yeah, spiral. Sure. So that was not something that we that we thought about when we decided to make the film. What we thought of our initial idea for the film was to make to tell the story of where the items we use in the rest of the world that we don't think about, uh, where they come from, and the people whose lives are dedicated to them. So this is a little bit before the recent slowdown in GDP growth and a lot of the pundits kind of saying that this was a changing time for China. This was a little, we filmed the whole documentary sort of while that was happening. And yeah, it, it was very obvious from talking to people, uh, especially Nigel, the, the English trader and, and, and Wang Xiaoyang, the, the, um, store owner, that mm-hmm. things were, well, they were definitely going in a place that was unknown. And, uh, yeah, the signs were all there when we were there. And then that was, we discussed it while we were shooting and then so a lot in the edit uh, that this is the best way to, to play this story, you know, not as just a place, uh, not as just a story about the place where all our, our funny little things come from and, and our, our trinkets come from, but a sort of microcosm for a changing China. And yeah, and it really works in that, in that way too. Uh, thanks I a lot. It really does capture mm. a lot of, I mean, the labor dynamic, of course, mm. Uh, as well as the increase in competition, the slowdown, uh, the, the pinch in global imports mm. from China. Uh, yeah, I thought it was it was it worked very well in that, in that capacity. Well, I guess towns like Iwu are. I mean, they're on the chopping block, right? I mean, if it's the 
we hear it a lot. We heard a lot from people there that the government was well. I mean, like you know, the the, the government line was to go into high tech goods, to go into information technology, to go into cars, and to try to leave behind that that sort of cheap stuff factory of the world, like you said, David, that kind of thing. And I guess people like Nigel were thought that that the high tech boom would come to Iwu, but that was very unlikely at the time and and it's still sort of unraveling the story there maybe maybe since you've already mentioned the name nigel i'll i'll skip ahead a little bit to something i wanted to ask but just uh the 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 glimpse into the lives of these foreigners is very interesting and it was interesting to me that each one had a slightly different or you know sometimes a drastically different impression of 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 Iwu according to their particular involvement level of involvement in the culture. So you mentioned Nigel is this Australian there who had been there. It's English, he's British or English. British Australian, yeah, British yeah. Australian who who actually had settled down enough to have met a, a Chinese woman and married her and and had an in laws there, and uh, he was struggling but he was having a good time. He was a good old boy and he couldn't speak Chinese very well but he was toasting with the best of them. And then you had this <laughs> then you had this German guy Marco the the silver wolf for whatever who was just completely negative about the whole thing you know it's a, it's a jungle he kept saying you know this you know and because he was uh, couldn't speak the language was frustrated by everyone around him why are they so stupid Can, uh, maybe just give us a you know a pressy of the of the people that you, por- you did portraits of in this film and, and their experience sure there was a Katarina from Belarus mm-hmm. who's also uh, really an interesting character too I mean, we we spent a lot of time with European foreigners in Iwu, which doesn't really show you a good portrait of what the foreigners look like in in Iwu. The like I said before, the big makeup of them are Arab speaking from North Africa and or from North Africa all the way to Central Asia. But the people that we managed to get in contact with and that we got good access from were Europeans, and um, so. I mean, Nigel. We got in contact with Nigel really early in the piece. I I emailed him because he had an office in in a town not far from mine, uh, like on the Sunshine Coast in Australia, which was really funny. But um, I got in contact with him early, and yeah, he's he's one of the expats. Who's he's a big he's sort of a lifer there. You know, he's lived there for about ten years at, at the time of shooting, and um, he's ensconced in the community there. He's he's a big figure there. He's, he owns a lot of restaurants. You know, he he owns has. Guanxi with all the all the guys in the um in the <laughs> local government and whatever, but yeah he he loves Iwu and he yeah he can't he can't speak very well but he he has he, he gives it his best shot, but yeah he's married he's got a kid he's got business there he's completely entrenched he it would be difficult for him to just pull out at any moment. Someone like Marco who's a German factory owner he's building a factory to make high end notebooks in Iwu. He really prides himself on that fly in, fly out. You know, he stays at a fancy hotel. He he calls Germany his home. You know, and it's you see it in the film. But I think Nigel's a far happier person, even though his yeah, I think that comes across. Yeah, his his Nigel's life might be a little bit more difficult because he's got he's put he's thrown in his lot with with Iwu, and now he's got to stick it out. But uh, it just you know you you he's. But he's a happier man for it, you know, and and he's got a good approach to Iwu. Whereas, and and Yekaterina is the same. She's she loves Iwu. She's completely from the other side of the spectrum. She's a dan- she's a Belarusian 
18-year-old dancer at the uh, nightclub in the middle of Iwu, but she... um. By the way, I've I, David, you, I've you've been actually to been to that yeah, club. Yeah, huh? I was in, in Iwu about a year ago, and uh, the one of the people that we were with there all day long kept saying, you know, leave some time for tonight. I want to take you to this club. Amazing club. I want to take you to this club. He said, all right, all right. We'll go to the club. And when I got there, it, it is an astounding place. It is completely out to lunch. I was struck by, we don't have anything like this in Beijing or even Shanghai, as far as I know. <laughs> I was I was propositioned or, you know, sort of, uh, you know, hit upon by at least three genders. Uh, and and I was I was thinking, how do they do this here in the People's Republic of China? They seem to be this little uh, oasis of of Roman, you know, debauchery. Uh, uh, and but but yes, uh, this uh, Katerina or Katie, I guess she called it. She was interesting also because she uh, loved it clearly. The adulation and the, and what I thought about the club was it seemed to be a sort of a a, a dream space where people could go and dream about this. Foreignness and this 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 goal of foreign opulence and making it rich, you know. Go go ahead and continue to talk about uh, the club, but I I was there and it it left a huge impression on me. And so just to to keep going there, why why were you in Iwu a year ago? It was <laughs> a good question. I was I was actually there for a uh, a jazz concert in um, a big new uh, auditorium or whatever there, and it just had nothing to do with the city. But everyone there, I was aware instantly that oh, we have a long history. We're the you know, the center of China's trading hub. We're a Chinese trading hub, and we have a long history. And it was clear that it's a very stratified society. There's some very very rich people and some very very poor people there, and. Uh, it, you you don't have to be there many hours before you sense the the intensity uh, the 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 sort of diversity and and the struggle the, the just the economic struggle going on there it's pretty interesting lots of cops around everywhere <laughs> Dan Dan yeah uh, in your in your doc none of the portraits that you do are really of of spectacular success stories not the foreign entrepreneurs or the local folks but. Are there true success stories to be told from there? Are there, you know, people rolling around Ferraris, billionaires who just made a killing selling this schlock, or is is this really kind of a a fading dream? Did you deliberately exclude some of the success stories just to focus on kind of those that are affected more by the downturn? Yes, there definitely are. I mean, Marco says it best in the in the film. He says there's people who are earning four thousand RMB a month here, and there's people who are earning. $40,000 a month here. There's a huge spectrum of, of, of wealth there. To, to be honest, Nigel and um, Marco are actually quite successful in the town. You know, my, uh, Nigel, Nigel, Nigel runs a lot of businesses. He, he makes a, a decent amount of money, I think. I never asked him about figures, but that, that amount of money that he earns gets less and less every year. And I'm sure it sort of jumped off a cliff in the, in sort of starting from when we shot the film. But he's a you know he he's his was a success story that was starting to wane but but it was definitely a success story. But you see opulence on another scale in Iwu. It's it's a ve- it's a it's a sort of it's one of those other very visually evocative and 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 inspiring things is that you see this city that's been built almost out of impulse. It's it's like it used to be an old ancient city, but that's very hard to see now. And now it's just stock built neighborhoods just plonked in the middle of you know farms but you see hummers and 
Mercs and Bentleys. Marco said to me off, I think we, we, he said it to me in an interview, but I, I left it out. It just didn't really fit in. But he said, uh-huh. you're no one in this town if you don't have a Bentley. Um, <laughs> so, so he, he was talking about, he was talking about buying a new BMW. He doesn't have a BMW. He's got a little scooter, but he was talking about buying a BMW. And he's like, after I get the BMW, I'll get the Bentley because you're no one in this town without a Bentley. <laughs> um, and, I mean, he, he, he does come off like that. Yeah, a bit. he's. I mean, he, he didn't have to have it on film. But it's yeah, the 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 and it's excessive wealth too. There, I mean, uh, George Young's a little bit famous for that, right? But it's you. You we were at the club uh, out the front. We shot a big, large sequence out the front of Means Club, um, which Dave was talking about earlier, and the the cars that were pulling up. I, I keep speaking about cars because that's the only way you could tell people were rich there because the city is. Uh, just looks like a ghetto, but um, <laughs> but the you know the the, the just millions of RMBs worth of, of of metal and glass pulling up out the front of that thing, and people in very expensive suits ordering lots and lots of expensive drinks. But uh, yeah, and I I think I think you have it all there, and I think Marco says that the Arabs are the richest people in Iwu, and he has a lot of. Uh, projections about the town that can can sometimes be right and and sometimes be wrong, but I think he's pretty on the money there. You do the Arabs, the Arab speaking people have been there the longest, and I think mm. they make the most money. They've got all the contacts, they've got all the guanshi, they've got all that sort of stuff, and the Westerners. W- was it? Mm? Presumably, you tried to to make more inroads into the Arabic community there to st- t- talk to more of them, but was there some difficulty in 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 getting access? We definitely did. I mean, Dia, the, we've got the character Dia, who you spoke about earlier, the Yemeni sure. uh, teacher, who we found a fascinating character because he came from a very poor part of Yemen. He left his family there to come and to make the big bucks like all of his friends were in, in Iwu. But he can't. There, there's not the opportunities there. So he's stuck very, he's very disappointed with his position in, 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 in the world at the moment. But he's stuck as an English teacher in this in this Yemeni school, and I sort of tried to to position the story that way to show someone slightly on the fringes, watching watching all of the wealth go by. But yeah, we we tried. I mean, when we first went there, we met a very successful Iraqi businessman who was very helpful to us, but had no interest in being in the film. But there is a lot of cultural and language difficulties, you know, because it's. The, yeah, there's a, there's, they've got their own communities, the the sure, Arabic speaking sure. people, and they were very well they were very welcoming to talk to us. But we try to WeChat them, we try to organise interviews, but it always just sort of seemed to not uh, not happen. Well, I honestly found that, that the Chinese people that you profiled were, on on the whole, incredibly sympathetic. Particularly, there was, of course, uh, the woman. Um, I suppose her surname is Wang. Wang Xiaoyang. Uh, with the Santa store. Yeah, Wang Xiaoyang. And uh, there was the migrant worker named Ma mm. and his wife. I mean, he's just a, a a wonderfully sympathetic character. The guy who came from Sanxi and left his kids behind there and who, I guess at the end, I won't spoil what happens to him. But, but the the scene with the older brother and, the, and, and sister in the octogenarian couple, I mean, I guess a brother and sister, who had been there their whole lives, I mean, that was that was really interesting. I mean, they had seen all of the vicissitudes of, of the town, I mean, from, from the Japanese invasion and years of Mao and then the go-go 80s with the uh, Deng reforms and the whole boom. And so what was what was what were you trying to say with with that segment of the film? I mean, it almost seemed like 
these elderly siblings were maybe the most optimistic of all the people that you talked to because they, they tended to compare the current situation to the truly awful poverty in which they were mired in the past. Yeah, I guess what we we always wanted to have a bit of history, but I didn't really want to just get out the maps and the stock footage and delve into it that way. We thought the best way to to get a glimpse of of not just Iwu's history and Joe Jung's history, but but China's history, you know. And these two were were great characters that we happen upon through Nigel because they're they're obviously um the grandparents of Nigel's wife Jessie. But really, yeah, what we wanted to show a bit of the history, how how different it is for even from sort of forty years ago there in there in Iwu. But um yeah, they they were there to yeah, to to give that perspective as well, you know. I think I think it's a common thing for filmmakers, especially Western filmmakers in countries like China, to kind of show opulence and wealth and and this this sort of desire for money, and then and then show the the slow life of the people in the villages, and kind of say, look, you know, this is what it could be. It could be this good, but yeah, it's like exactly what they say. They're so happy about. The amount of wealth, the amount of the, just seeing their grandchildren with iPads and and their children with Mercedes is just such a such a pleasing sight for them, you know. Like the grandma said, they used to have to share sweet potatoes, one sweet potato amongst the whole family. You know, I mean, it sounds like a bit That's of a right. cliche now, but but across multiple meals, yeah. Uh, but. Times have changed, and times have changed to the better. And I think that's the story across across all of China. Absolutely, I notice you. That's that is in fact that strategy. It works very well. You you tell the whole story of, of of this in of these people's lives just largely through interviews and images, and there's very minimal voiceover at all in the, in this in the. In yeah, the, very little narr- narration. Yeah, yeah. Well, what other messages emerge out of that 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 struck you when you started actually doing this project? Sure. So I've always really admired documentary filmmakers like Errol Morris and uh, an Australian filmmaker called Mark Lewis, who who tell documentaries without narration. Because I think even if you can't get a larger scope uh, for the film and for the story that you can with narration, because it's quite easy to shorthand and just say, this happened then. But if you can't get that, I think it's more compelling and a, and a better story to just listen to the people talk and 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 I mean Nigel's not so eloquent about uh, talking about the history of Iwu but it's his perspective of of the history of Iwu you know and I think that lends lends itself in another way to to the to the film but it um presents itself with challenges you know because you get back to the edit and you've got this interview material that that is favoring a different narrative that you had at the time when you were shooting the film and now you want to say something slightly different and you've got to tweak it and find exactly what people said then to uh, do it. But then, uh, yeah, thanks a lot for that for that compliment because it's, it really means a lot that we were able to to pull that off and and to to show a compelling narrative and a compelling story just through the characters in the film and a little bit of narration. And, and Dan, what's next for the for the documentary? Where where do we see this going in the next year? Okay, so it's uh, we. We've sold it to a couple of territories uh, in Israel, so any Israeli listeners or Portuguese listeners will be able to see it on RTP or DBS in Israel. I'm trying to sell it. To, oh, great. I'm trying to sell it to a few more territories. Uh, Does Seneca have listeners in Israel, Kaiser? I I believe we do. Really? Yes. Wow. Um, so they can they can check it out. Just just keep an eye out on DBS, the documentary channel there. 
but I'm trying to sell it in Australia, trying to trying to get it to screens in Australia and the states. We've been talking to a lot of distributors, uh, to, to sorry, to a lot of networks, and hopefully that'll be the way it goes. But right now, it's it's all on. It's on iTunes and it's on most places where you'll find video, not Netflix or, or those ones, but where you can buy video, Google Play, Vimeo, YouTube. It's, it's all up there. But is, yeah, it's on iTunes. As an educator uh, and someone who teaches at a Chinese studies program, I also heartily recommend it to my colleagues and friends out there as a, something to show to your classes because it, it is uh, one of those things uh, you look at it at first and think, well, this is something just to watch uh, on your own or outside of class. But I think it fits in actually very well to any sort of modern China class because the, the issues are, right. are very vivid and very realistically pr- presented. Well, thank you very much. That means a lot to hear that, yeah. Well, the documentary is called Bulkland, and you can catch a trailer for free or pay a small pittance to watch the film on YouTube. And as Dan said, you can see it on Vimeo and on a whole bunch of other video platforms. Uh, Director Dan Whalen, that was a fascinating conversation, and thanks for taking the time to join us. I hope you'll stick around and uh, do some recommendations with us. Thanks a lot, Kaiser. All right. Before we get to recommendations, I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at SupChina.com. You can follow SupChina on Twitter at, at @SupChinaNews and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SupChinaNews. Uh, recommendations. David, why don't you kick us off this week? Okay, I'd like to recommend a, a very long uh, and interesting long-form interview with the editor of Global Times, uh, oh, Hu Xijin, yeah. in the interesting online site Quartz, which has some, uh, lots of interesting material. I don't know the person who interviewed Hu Xijin, uh, someone named Huang Zheping, but this is a, a very... Yeah, Huang, Huang Zheping's been writing uh, a lot of their China articles really? for a while now. Yeah, yeah he's very, yeah. very good. Uh, what I like about this 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 interview, and I recommend it to, to people who are interested in media, China media and censorship, is is that th- this this to me represents a, a very nice breakthrough in in the China media world, which is I feel like uh, it's great to have an interview from like from someone like this from the inside. He's from the Global Times, which, as we all know, is this very very hawkish, uh, nationalistic. A news a newspaper, stridently nationalist newspaper, they usually say, and the editor is a very interesting person who writes many of the edit- editorials. But it's nice to see someone willing to talk to foreign reporters, frankly, on a uh, on an even even footing, and and to go from this era when when both sides uh, were sort of isolated it, on, and in their bunkers and and sniped at each other from a distance. It's nice to see uh, you know people coming out and actually engaging in a dialogue. Uh, uh, engaging in in you know in what they have to, which is spin, rather than just simply uh, isolated sniping, uh, and it's, so it's very nice to see that uh, he's, he comes across as a very complex character. There's a lot of cognitive dissonance. Uh, he comes across also as someone who is not just a mouthpiece for the. Uh, Can you hear that, Kaiser? Uh, I'm, I'm I'm glad. No, we've got the authentic Beijing. Yeah. You know, <laughs> The sound of the, the right, yeah. So the Zhuang Xiu sound. Yeah, you could you could instantly hear it, right? It's this. Oh yeah, yeah. Let's just talk through. Should it, I just talk through it? As we always. All right. Have. Sorry about yeah. that. Um, he he comes across surprisingly as someone who's not just a, a voice for the party, but as someone who has to work within the system. He he, you know, he also fears uh, censure and and censorship and. Uh, and he also was part of the 1989 student movement in Tiananmen Square, which is quite interesting. Um, and he 
has he does his own spin, obviously, but he it's a very very fascinating inter- interview and a, an amazing portrait of this of this uh, editor. Yeah, I've I've bookmarked that. I haven't gotten to it yet, but uh, I'll read it just just when we're done here. You'll pull you'll pull your hair out reading it. But, I'm sure but I it's, will. But it's sure uh, but it's very good to have it. I think it's we need more of this kind of thing. Cool, good recommendation. What about you, Dan? What do you have for us? Great. I'd just like to mention before before I give mine that it's it's fascinating. I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading that article because at the moment, since I've been here in, in China, I'm, I'm visiting from, uh, from Sydney, there's been a huge spat between the Global Times and the Australian media. Uh, I'm not sure whether right, you're aware, right, Kaiser. Right. Have you seen any? Oh, I have been watching, yeah. Yeah. So, um, I'm really looking forward to reading that article about, about, about the Global Times because they, I wasn't really, they weren't really on my map until, until just the other day when, when they had that, uh, that, that sort of, um, uh, had that big go at Mac the Horton and the, spat, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so I've got a bit of an old recommendation. I it's a film that I was thinking about films, you know, because because it's sort of what we've been talking about today. But uh, a few years ago, I, I I was doing a I was doing a commercial down in this industrial city south of Sydney called Wollongong, and I got to the hotel late at night and I turned on the telly and there was this. So there was this amazing documentary on on the TV called Interviews on Death Row, a Chinese uh, talk show, which was a BBC documentary in co-production with a with a Chinese company here. Have either of you guys seen that? Yeah, I, I have, haven't I seen did, it. No. I caught that. It was a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah, it was a few years ago, but it, I I caught it again just just recently. It just uh, and it is such a fabulous documentary and probably my favorite about China. Uh, it concerns these this um, host of this TV show. I think her name's Ding Yu. And she mm-hmm. uh, she hosts a TV show on on Hernan Legal Channel, which is a hilarious name for a channel. But uh, where she interviews, which she interviews people right condemned before criminals, death row, yeah. condemned criminals death just before death row. So incredibly moving interviews with 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 these people just before they're they're taken to the gallows, as it were. And um, and it's just it's it's that that's. Part of it, but you could just watch it just for that. But there's also this really great look inside both the legal system and Chinese media, which I think is um, yeah, it's really a must-watch. It's it's a really really great film. Great, yeah, I, I hardly endorse that. That that's a, a excellent documentary. Uh, okay, so I'll, I'll go now. Uh, two things, two quick ones. One very quick one. Uh, it was originally on WeChat and went viral briefly in July and earlier this month. Uh, Called Beijinglish. David, did you see that? Yes, I did. My wife forwarded it to me. That was I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's two episodes of it. It's actually available on YouTube too, or uh, you just Google for Beijinglish. Uh, it's it's this funny little animated piece uh, narrated by this guy with this this almost uh, absurdly thick Beijing accent, <laughs> right. uh, uh, talking about how Beijingers pronounce English words. You know, good morning or, or beautiful. Uh, it's it's awesome. It's it, it cracked us up, and my my kids just never get enough of it. And we <laughs> we speak Beijing English frequently now. I, I was always doing that. I'd always take you know English words like infer and say infer, and like confer or deter. Deter was a good one. You don't want to deter me. Don't try to deter me. Yeah, we want to first confer. Anyway, uh, that that's fun. Beijing English. 
the second is you know something related to American politics, which I've been deeply immersed in. I think I'm going to go register voters this weekend. Uh, James Fallows, who uh, of course spent many years living in China, he's been writing these things he calls time capsules in the Atlantic. He's done I think 73 of them now. Uh, he's preserving for posterity uh, just the things that you know. Years from now, we're just not going to believe uh, about this whole Donald Trump phenomenon. I mean, just going through and, and reading them. What strikes me is just how many times you just don't think he could say or do anything more preposterous and extreme. Yeah. And somehow he manages to do something more preposterous and, and extreme. Uh, it's to me, it's it's just bizarre. Uh, like today, you know, with his exhortation to the Second Amendment types. Um, I don't know if you, you guys heard heard that. No, I that's that's the news. Yeah, check it out. It's unbelievable what he did. Um, anyway, people are going to look back on this era. This is this is what's what the the intro to it written by an Atlantic editor says. People will look back on this era in our history to see what was known about Donald Trump while Americans were deciding whether to choose him as president. Here's <laughs> a running chronicle from James Fallows on the evidence available to voters as they make their choice and of how Trump has broken the norms that applied to previous major party candidates. So uh, yeah, check it out. It's it's very valuable. Wow. And time capsules and, on and, the Atlantic. And Zhong Nanhai is rubbing their hands with glee. That sounds great. Anyway, hey, thanks, Dan. No worries. Uh, thanks, David. It's great. Yeah, it was a pleasure having you on. Thank you very much. Yeah. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Special thanks this week to Anla Cheng, to Amadeo Tumalillo, and to Soraya Darawi from SubChina. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast and leave a like for us. And follow us on Twitter at Seneca Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care.